Hey, this is Dan Wunderlich, and welcome to Art of the Sermon, a show for preachers, teachers, and communicators. My guest today is Matt Miofsky. He's the founding and lead pastor of The Gathering, a multi-site church based in St. Louis, Missouri. This is the first of two parts with Matt, and today he talks about the connection between preaching and church growth. My guest today is Matt Miofsky. He's the founding and lead pastor at The Gathering, a multi-site church based in St. Louis, Missouri. Matt, thanks so much for being with us today. Thank you, Dan. It's good to be with you. Well, we like to begin by having all our guests tell us a little bit about themselves as well as their ministry and its context. Great, thanks. Yeah, uh, well, I grew up in St. Louis, actually outside St. Louis in a small town, uh, but I went to college here, so I've spent, other than my time in seminary, which was at Emory University in Atlanta, Georgia, I've spent all my life in or around St. Louis. And so uh, when I got done with seminary, I was appointed to a church here. And, you know, if, if listeners have been to St. Louis, they might know this. I mean, St. Louis is a city that I think has so much promise and potential. At the same time, it's got a lot of challenges. Similar to a lot of Rust Belt cities, it's experienced a decline in population, a decline in uh, industry and companies that are headquartered here. It's struggled very publicly at times with a, a lot of issues, crime, racism, education. And yet, I, I just had this sense, as a lot of people who live here do, that it's it's a beautiful place and that there's a there's a future for it. And I wanted to be part of that. And so in 2006, I started a church in the city. It was really important to me that it be kind of in, in the city of St. Louis itself, in a neighborhood that people, quite frankly, told me, don't plant there. I mean, it was a neighborhood in decline population-wise. There was nothing special about it. We we started in an old, abandoned United Methodist Church building with a church that had closed in it. Uh, we were closing churches all over the city of St. Louis, Methodist and otherwise. And yet, in the midst of that, we wanted to start something new. And 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 really, it was a it really wasn't an, an analogy for what we thought was possible for our city. That even though it was old, and maybe a lot of people had thought it had seen its better days, we believed there was something. Uh, new ahead. So I started the church in 2006, and I've been pastoring it ever since. We now have four sites uh, around the city with the hopes to start more sites. Uh, what's been really neat is there's <laughs> there's nothing necessarily special about the way we started. We didn't have a lot of money. Uh, we didn't have a big building. We didn't have a people. I mean, it, we started it from scratch. There was no big church supporting us. Uh, it was we didn't experience population growth at all, much less huge population growth. And yet, the spirit's done uh, a really surprising thing. And so, uh, we've been able to grow and, and and grow pretty rapidly. And so, it's been exciting to see uh, that vision become a reality in St. Louis. Obviously, you and I both and all of our listeners believe in the power uh, of God working through people who are answering where God is leading. But if you had to put your finger on maybe one or two practical things you did early on that you're really glad that you did, is there anything that you might share with, with our listeners? You know, people have asked me this question a lot over the past 11 years. We were just, for the second year in a row, on the top 25 fastest growing large United Methodist Church list, which I means I get a lot of people asking, you know, how did you do that or whatever? <laughs> yeah. And I, 
And I say, you know, I say it was a, it truly was a movement of the spirit. The Holy Spirit was was doing something, and the best thing that we did is is believed in that and kind of got out of the way where we needed to and invested where we needed to on a practical level. What I really mean by that is we believed the spirit wanted to do something big in our city. And so early on, and this is all in retrospect, I look back, we acted with a great degree of boldness in asking people to do things that most people wouldn't ask folks to do. We expected things of people that I think a lot of our churches are afraid to expect of people. Like we were bold, we had high expectations, and we had big hopes for what was possible. And we acted as if something big was going to happen. And and I say that because in a lot of our churches, I'm not sure we always go around believing the Holy Spirit wants to do something big. Mm. I'm not sure we always ask people bold questions because we don't, you know, I'm not sure we really believe people are going to, for example, give up a a new job in a new city just to stay somewhere and invest in our church or give a large financial gift that we thought is crazy. I mean, so I, what, what I'm getting at is it, it was a miracle of the Holy Spirit. That's how the church grew. But I think miracles oftentimes are happening all around us, and and we often don't act like those things are possible. And so I always tell people, you know, we asked for all sorts of bold, audacious things early on, and we still do today. Now, 99 out of 100 times, people said no. But you know what? One out of 100, they said yes. And those stories were huge and propelled our church forward. So what I always tell pastors is, how many big things are you asking or expecting of people? And if you're only asking or expecting 10, maybe you should up it to 100, because you're going to have to put up with a lot more failure, but you'll also get to see more miracles. So I don't know if that fleshes it out a little bit more for you, but we we really did act as if we believed, and a lot of people thought we were crazy or thought we were naive yeah, or thought we were idealistic, but we, we acted as if God was going to do something big. That's, that's exciting. And, and I would think that some people might look at a church like yours versus others and say that your church was proactive where other people are reactive. They're kind of waiting for people to show up and then they'll get things going where you went out there and you know, you got ahead of the curve, but really you were reactive too. You were just reacting to, the Holy Spirit, you know, so you were you were reacting maybe to intangible things or, or the promises that you knew that God loved your city. Uh, so it's yeah. not that you were it's not that you were forcing God to move you, but you were already responding to stuff that maybe other people are either not sensitive to or maybe I, I don't know. I know I'll just speak for myself. I maybe might lack the courage to go after because it's so unseen or untested at the time. So, so I'll give you a practical example. When we're starting out. You know, we just had a belief like, hey, we're going to have hundreds of people in the first year. So we just believe that the Holy Spirit wants to gather not just a few people, but like a, you know, a surprising number. So if we believe the Holy Spirit's going to gather 250 people, well, then my job became, I'm going to go out and my job is to invite and find those 250 people because the Spirit's going to do this work. So suddenly it was like every day was a challenge to figure out who are those 250 that were going to be part of that opening worship service. Now, to find them, I had to invite about 1,500 people, because, you know, (laughs) 70% of them are going to say no. But boy, you invite 1,500 people, you'll find the 250, 
that the spirit's already moving in. And it was that kind of an approach. I think other people say, you know, I don't feel comfortable inviting. I don't know what to say. I'm, I'm just going to kind of wait. And the Holy Spirit could be out there working in people's lives. But, you know, Paul says, how are they going to hear if there's no one to tell them? And so we, we sort of saw our, our job is like we, we were coming alongside to work with the Holy Spirit and what the Spirit already wanted to do. That's great. That's great. Well, we like to ask uh, communicators towards the beginning of the episodes, uh, what are your philosophies or approaches to preaching or communication in general? If you had a mission statement or a guiding principle specifically for your preaching and communication, what might it be? Yeah, that's a good question. Well, let me first say, like, this has changed a little bit for me over the years, and um, I still try to maintain a real openness to communication and preaching. And what I mean by that is I think it's a little dangerous when pastors, and I see this a lot, they kind of come out of seminary, they're trained a certain way. And like, this is how I preach. This is what preaching is. This is how I preach. This is how I'm going to do it. Yeah. And it works for a season, but the problem is it, it becomes sacrosanct. It becomes so important to them that they never go back and say, is that philosophy still right? Is is that uh, approach still right? Is that belief about preaching is still right? Or do I need to change and grow in my understanding of what God's calling me to do in this moment? And I don't see enough of that, to be really honest with you. I see preachers who are preaching the same way 20 years in as they did when they graduated from seminary, mm. with the same basic philosophy or the same basic way of writing a sermon. And so that's not that's not me. I, I want my approach and my strategy. I, I want to have one, but I also don't want to be so wed to it that I'm not willing to say, hey, maybe it's time for a new approach. So I'll give you a practical example. You know, I started the gathering as a lectionary preacher. That's what I learned in seminary. So preaching for me, you know, was sharing the Word of God. The lectionary was uh, it and, uh, and, and sermons were 15 minutes and, uh, that was just sort of, that was it. And, and you know what, I started the gathering and it worked actually, it, it went, it, it was good. And then I started to see, to, to just look around and say, well, I know some people are doing sermon series. Some people aren't using the lectionary. Some people are preaching themes and topics instead of starting with the scripture verse you know, let me, instead of, instead of deciding these are bad approaches, what if I tried them on? And so there was a season where I actually tried on different approaches to preaching. I would do series. I would go back to lectionary. I would start with the text and move to sermon. Other times I'd start with a theme or a question that people are asking and move to the text and to the sermon. And, and, you know, to this day, I've really maintained that approach that I want to, I, I want to, I want to be a little bit, uh, you know, I've preached now in the same place for almost, well, 11 years now. So if I don't change and grow in my approach and strategy, then I get a little bit bored and I can't imagine what it's like for the people that are, you know, have to listen to me this whole time. So, you know, underneath it all, my philosophy is this, I, you know, my role is to share good news of Jesus with people how I do that and the, the, the way I do it to me is something I'm always experimenting with and rethinking. So 
I, I don't know if that gets at your question, but it's, it's something that I think a lot about. My role is to share good news, the good news of Jesus with people, uh, and how I do it. I'm kind of always curious <laughs> to play around with that. Yeah, no, that's definitely an approach uh, is is to remain open to what's new or where you feel God is leading you. And this may be an impossible question to answer, but I like to ask it from time to time. Do you have a sense for maybe where preaching is going? Are there any um, new forms or new ideas that you've seen people playing with? Or or are there any trends in the wider culture that you think may find their way into preaching or how we communicate the gospel? Well, you know, I don't want to pretend to be a futurist, but I will tell you some things I'm seeing in our context, some which make sense, some are counterintuitive. I think, you know, to me, storytelling is people are kind of constantly trying to figure out how to tell stories and, and tell them in a more compelling way. So I'm intrigued by the different ways in which people tell stories. You know, whether it's the way a TV show tells a story or a movie tells a story or YouTube, you know, channel tells a story or the way that digital art or, um, or even the architecture of a place tells a story. So I, I like thinking about, you know, how, cause we have a story to tell as well. And we've usually pictured it as, you know, a person standing there talking and that's kind of how we tell it. But are there, are there other ways to tell the story? I think there probably are. So, you know, I, that, that's something I think about. There, there's something to that. The future of preaching, I think, is probably going to... Somebody's going to come up with new and interesting ways to, to tell a story that we think can change people's lives you know, oddly enough, my preaching's gotten longer over the years. I heard a lot of people, you know, there's popular wisdom that said, you know, people's attention spans are short. You have to preach in short snippets and, you know, interrupt them all the time. And I've actually not seen that's the case with churches that grow, oddly enough. And Carrie Newhoff did a podcast about this, or wrote an article, I think, about this one time, about how, you know, actually longer messages are are working with people. And I see that as well. There's a bigger teaching load that has to happen in sermons. People don't come with knowledge of, of some of the stories that we're talking about. There's a credibility gap that we have to close, I think, in every sermon, meaning people don't just come trusting that what the preacher has to say is worth listening to. So there's, mm. there, there's some time that has to be spent in, in establishing common ground, establishing some credibility, I, I always tell people, people have to believe uh, in you before they believe in what you're saying. And that, that takes extra time in a message. Uh, stories are important, and so stories take a little bit of time. So I actually think longer preaching, oddly enough, will continue to be a trend, uh, even if it's not just a person talking the entire time. But I think, you know, th- those are a couple of the things that I, I've been thinking about and see. I also think, you know, Removing the sermon, we've tended to think of the sermon as a moment. It's something that happens in worship. Yeah. But now, now with digital technology and you know, online messages and all that, sermons aren't just moments in worship. They are that, but they live on in a way that they never used to. I mean, think about this. 20 years ago, 10 years ago, really, even, I mean, preachers wrote their sermons down, I guess, and you could always go read a book of sermons. But... Now, 
my message is going to be listened to many more times after it's preached than when it's preached. Yeah. And so writing sermons that live on is weird. I mean, that's a different thing, right? So they're no longer only moments in worship. They are now also this other thing, whatever you call that thing. And so how you use them in the future, how you share them, what, what, what they do in the future, I think that's interesting, and there's, there's something there for us to be thinking about, I think. Yeah, and I think you're actually a really good example of this. As I was uh, researching and preparing for this interview, when you Google Matt Miofsky, you're a, a multi-book author. You've got a multi-site church. You've done tons and tons of things. But the number one thing that shows up on Google and on YouTube is a sermon on homosexuality you gave like five years ago, and it has I think like fifty thousand right. views. Um, and it's so one of those things where in that moment you were you were you know, saying to your congregation what you wanted to say that day, I can't imagine you would have thought, you know, 50,000 people over the next five years are going to listen to the sermon. Yeah, that's right. So it really changes, like, who am I pre... Some of the basic questions we ask, like, you know, who's the audience? <laughs> and yeah. uh, What are they going through? And, what, and, and you'd be uh, surprised and amazed to uh, find out that your sermons can often have... They can, they can say much more than you ever intended for them to say when you wrote them. And so I <laughs> yeah. think... I think that's uh, that's something that we're going to have to continue to wrap our our minds around. What yeah. are the implications of that? Yeah. Well, let me ask you, as someone who leads a multi-site church and has a big staff and, and a lot of things to handle, where does preaching fall in your hierarchy of priorities or on your list of activities as a lead pastor? Yeah, it's uh, right at the top. It's the single thing that I dedicate the most time to in a week. It is, you know, along with maybe two, one to two other items, it's the way I think I can best impact our church. So I'm uniquely positioned to impact our church in this way, and therefore it's worth the best of my time and energy. Um, and what I mean by that is, as we grew, I had to give up a lot of things that I think... Well, I had to give up a lot of activities that previously I thought were just part and parcel of what it meant to be a pastor. Like, to be Mm. a pastor, you have to do pastoral care. I mean, that's just what it means to be a pastor. And I had to renegotiate some of those things as we grew in in order to give preaching a significant chunk of my time. So, in addition to writing the sermon, which takes me, you know, I dedicated a day and a half every week just to that activity of, of writing and practicing and kind of sharpening it and then finally preaching it. I also preach a lot. I mean, I preach six times a weekend, roughly. So mm-hmm. a, a lot of my time is spent crafting and preaching, and that's how I impact the majority of people in our church. So it's a top activity of mine. And I know some of it probably depends on context and and there's a little bit of freedom that you have as being the church planter where if maybe you were sent to uh, maybe a smaller rural congregation where in, in the minds of the congregation, the pastor is the one that has to do the pastoral care and go to the hospital and 
and go to dinner at everybody's house as you cycle through. It doesn't mean that can't be a role that's redefined, but do you have any words of encouragement or maybe tips for pastors that would like to try to carve out more space? Uh, maybe any yeah. tips on how to to delegate or shift responsibilities in a way that still uh, honors uh, maybe the congregation and, and their understanding of pastor? Well, it, you know, I always tell people, it, it's. I think it's really important to act your size. I mean, you have to live into the size culture of your church. So a small church, there are certain activities that you have to do. It, it's what helps a small church be vital and vibrant. It would never work in a large church, and it would be the very thing that would kill a large church. Mm. And, and similarly, there are things that large church pastors do that would kill a small church if you tried to act that way. Yeah. And so I, I, you know, I, I tell pastors, you know, really understanding your size culture, I think is really important and, and, and serving it in that kind of way. Don't bring a large church mentality to a small church. Similarly, don't bring small church mentality to a medium sized church. You're, you're going to, you will then become the bottleneck to that church growing. So, so if you don't like doing pastoral care and you're serving a small church, you're in trouble. I yeah. mean, yeah. there's just, you're in trouble. You know, uh, if you love pastoral care and doing it all yourself and you're serving a large church, you're in trouble. Yeah, <laughs> so absolutely. I mean, it, it cuts, it cuts both ways. Secondly, I think that you always have to be kind of considering your size culture and then considering what's the size culture right above where you currently are. And what are some things you're going to have to begin to change in order to live into a new size culture? So for churches that are bumping up against, you know, we often call them these, what, these sort of attendance thresholds that churches battle to, quote, overcome. And you hear different cutoffs, but whatever a small church is defined as, if, it, if it's beginning to turn into a medium-sized church, let's just say that means over 150 in worship or something, all of a sudden those are the tension areas where we used to be a small church and I was living into that size culture, but now we're changing. And if we want to continue to lean into this growth, suddenly I have to change at a rate the church can absorb. And so what I tell pastors is I, I think there it's an art, not a science. There's yeah. a wisdom to how to do this, but you have to begin strategically uh, equipping and setting up your church for you to say no to certain activities. And if you want it, so if you want to get more time to preach, to work on your preaching, what it means is you have to pick an activity and you have to equip your church and prepare them for you to begin to say no in that area of ministry. And I can't define for people always what that is. I mean, I, I see some trends and I think there's some, some things you have to let go of, but I see a lot of pastors who are really resistant to that. They, um, because for them, they've taken a trait of being a pastor at a certain size culture, and, and they think it's universal to what it means to be a pastor. And pastoral care is actually, I think, a pretty good example. We have a lot of trouble letting go of that, Yeah. even though I'm not sure it's particularly biblical, the idea that we ought to be the real ones going out and caring for all the people in our community. And if anybody else does it, then it's sort of not real or it's secondary or something. I think a much more biblical way of understanding that is equipping people in our church to care for one another, equipping a special team of people to care for the sick, and stepping back to let them take over more of the care. It's actually a beautifully biblical model of pastoral care that a lot of pastors really resist. 
Yeah, that's so true. That's so true. Well, Matt, uh, I invited you to be on the show because we met at an event and you're a pastor that I've admired from a distance. But in preparing for it, I saw that last fall you wrote a book about failure. And so I thought this might offer an opportunity to ask a question that I have yet to ask anybody on the podcast. Uh, and, and it re- revolves around failure in ministry or in preaching. Um, how do mm-hmm. you assess whether a sermon was a success or failure? Or is that even something that uh, you think about? And that's where we're going to end part one of this two-part interview with Matt Miofsky. Be sure to tune in to the next episode to hear Matt answer this question and our ensuing discussion about measuring success and failure in preaching. Thank you so much for joining me for this episode of Art of the Sermon. You can find show notes, including links to some of the things that we talked about at artofthesermon.com. As always, I would love to hear what you think about the show, and I want your input to be a part of the conversation. So you can connect with me through Facebook, Twitter, or Instagram, all at username Art of the Sermon. If you'd like to support the show, I would encourage you to subscribe to the podcast through iTunes, Google Play Music, or your favorite podcast app so that new episodes are downloaded as soon as they're live. And of course, in addition to sharing the show with your friends, the best way to help us out is to leave a review in the iTunes store. This lets iTunes know that you care about the show and want other people to find it. Thank you again so much for joining me, and I'll catch you next time on Art of the Sermon.